Hey everyone, this is Peter Levin, and you're listening to another episode of In Good Hands, a show about the companies and founders solving our climate crisis. Today, I interview Matt Scanlon, CEO and co-founder of Anatom, as well as major fashion brand Something Navy and newer fashion brand Takoon. So this episode is a little bit different than previous ones because we talk about a lot of ventures that Matt is working on. But all these different projects stem from one unique denominator, an adventure to Mongolia. And I won't tease too much here, but when you'll hear in the episode, all of these super successful brands start with just an innocent vacation to the middle of Mongolia. And so after talking about this adventure, we'll then transition to how exactly his NGO work turns the page into the launch of Nautum. After this, we'll talk about how exactly Nautum's supply chain prowess enabled him to power multiple white label, private label, and direct consumer projects, his thoughts around transparency and sustainability, and how these values manifest across his different properties, and finally, the grand vision for his company and the different CPG and fashion brands he's going to be turning online over the next few years. Y'all, this is one of the most interesting conversations I've had, and you'll hear in the episode a number of surprises that I would never anticipated. So without further ado, I hope you enjoyed this conversation with Matt Scanlon, co-founder and CEO of Nautum, and many more ventures. Matt, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, man. Uh, so Matt, let's start with the basics. What is Nautum? It's <laughs> a good question. It's a clothing brand. I think in the simplest form, that's that was always our intention was a clothing brand, lifestyle brand. I think we never really thought it was going to be as big or have the impact it does. When we first started it, it, it really grew very organically. Adopting terms like lifestyle brand is, is actually like pretty funny. And I got to be honest, and I'll tell you the story because I'm sure you're going to want to know, but I look around today and I'm like, I make women's sweaters for a living. Like, the hell? Like, how did I get here? <laughs> what mistakes did I make? Okay. What I do. You're teeing up a softball for me because that's <laughs> exactly what I was going to ask next. How does someone like yourself start a cashmere life for women. Give me the backstory. <laughs> yeah. So I – Funny story. So six, seven years ago, I had left a job here in the city, my first job out of college, but just realized that the track I was going down wasn't really interesting to me, that I wasn't passionate about the work. Certainly had some good opportunities, but I had come to a realization that I'll never really be successful if I don't love – what I do. Because when I'm passionate and excited about something, the results are normally better. And that was a obviously a big moment. And so I, I planned the ship to go abroad. I was going to travel for a bit, take a couple of months off, was going to start going throughout Asia. And an old college roommate of mine was studying in Asia. He was finishing up a master's um, in econometrics at the University of Beijing or something like that. And he said, if you're going to be traveling through, I'm going to take some time off and let's meet up, but let's go to Mongolia. It's a really fascinating country and the backpacking is really cool. It's a good place to start. So I fly from New York. And mind you, like I'm – was, pretty much still am, like a fairly like sheltered 
kid from Connecticut, had not had a lot of meaningful worldly travel experiences up until that point. And so this was like the beginning. This was like the first step. I was like sowing my wild oats and we meet up in Mongolia of all places. And if you've ever been to Mongolia, which you probably haven't, that's like a very weird place to start off this like global trip. It is a remote capital. Technically it's the coldest capital in the world, Ulaanbaatar, where we flew into. And it is a population of 3 million people living in a country that's a little bit larger than Texas. I think almost twice the size of Texas. Half the population is totally nomadic. They don't own land. They don't own homes. They subsist off of animal husbandry and they raise their goats, basically breaking down and rebuilding their gear or yurt, like a tent-like structure, 10 to 11 times a year. It's like National Geographic, like incredible. And there's a culture and um, a a society that has existed and in a lot of ways remained the same for a thousand years. So we were going to experience all this. Not exactly the way we did. So I get to Mongolia. I'm staying in a hostel with Diedrich. He's my co-founder now. now. And we go to a bar. We're like, okay, where the hell can we find like other like Westerners? Like we're really out of place here. So someone says, well, there's this expat bar where all, the, all these expats go. You should go there. So we show up and it's all Mongolians. No, <laughs> there's no expats there. And we sit at the bar and two guys come up to us and start talking to us. We end up spending the whole night kind of chatting with them. Um, one of them speaks English. One of them kind of pretends like he speaks English. And by the end of the night, they invite us to go on a trip with them a day trip. The The following morning, they're going to drive out to the countryside, which in Mongolia is not what we think of it as in New York. It's like from New York, you think of a day trip to the countryside. It's like, okay, we'll go to the Hamptons or we'll go upstate. No. For them, the countryside is everything else but the capital. And we get in the car. I, I don't know this, obviously, at the time. We get in the car. We start driving. We drive pretty much all day. We're making stops along the way. I'm not asking questions. I'm just like going with it and having fun and like really with these random the people with these random yeah, because, people. Yeah. Yeah. Because <laughs> this was like the, this was the intent, like to go on an adventure kind of thing. And so we were just going with it and we thought we were doing a big loop and spending all day, like driving through the countryside is there's no road infrastructure in Mongolia. So you off-road the whole time you're driving through step like the steppe of Asia, which is basically like a grasslands, like de- desert, a desertified grasslands area. And you follow dirt paths and you drive around through big mountain passes. It's beautiful. One of the most beautiful places in the world. And we drive all day until it's late at night, maybe one or two in the morning or something. But re- remember, we think we're coming back. Like we're driving all day, but like we're headed back to the city. We never even thought to ask the question, if we were going back, but the car is having some trouble and it's normal in Mongolia, you drive cars like really hard and they break down. So the car has some trouble, the engine overheats and we get out of the car and we find out over the next half hour or so that this car is not really going any further. So we need to get a ride. So one of the, one of the guys is with us, pulls out a satellite phone, makes a phone call, wait a little longer, group of guys on motorcycles come and we get on the back of the motorcycle, group of strangers, and we go, what I think is back to the city. And instead, we end up at a tiny gear, like I said, like a yurt gear structure of a nomadic herder. And we are in the middle of nowhere. I can't see, it's pitch black. What? I don't really know where we are. 
But basically, we've just driven instead of back to the city, straight from the city directly into the outer Gobi for about a 20 hour, 22 hour car ride that drove us into the middle of nowhere. And we spend the night with this herder. He would drink goat's milk vodka and he was like very welcoming and it's incredible. We wake up in the morning a little blurry eyed and we ask, okay, like how are we fixing the car? Like how close is the city? And basically over the course of a conversation, these two guys tell us they've been playing this trip for a long time and they're staying in this region for a month. And we can stay. We're allowed to stay. Like we, we can hang out here or hitchhike home. Like get, get, find our way home, basically. And if someone drives by, just go with them. Like, obviously, we're not going to do that. I don't like, I'm like so overwhelmed, very scared at this point. We didn't bring any food. We didn't bring any clothing. We don't have a cell phone service. We had nothing. Make a long story short, we lived there for a month. We spent a month living with this family. And they took what? us in. They fed us. They clothed us. I learned how to herd goats. I learned everything you could imagine about this culture. But I never really learned Mongolian. It's a tough language. And I would say for most of the trip, until a certain point, I was very uncomfortable. Like, really, I don't know if you ever traveled and been really out of your uh, comfort zone, where nothing is. A times, yeah. Yeah, it's a unique mm-hmm. experience. And if you're doing it for the first time, and you're now in an open-ended circumstance, and you don't know how you're getting home. It's very overwhelming, but I could never really get comfortable because I just didn't understand what was going on. And I know that sounds like a little arbitrary, but I could never really pinpoint like what the hell was happening. No one spoke English. No one does any of the things I'm used to doing. None of the things that make me feel comfortable exist here. The, I, like the food is completely different. Belief systems, occupations, societal norms. It's like I landed on another planet. And what about your co-founder? Is he freaking out too? Yeah, yeah, definitely. It's like, are you guys just going like wild right now? Like really crazy. It's not like the early part of that trip, I have mixed feelings about very honestly. And certainly I tell the story now, a lot of jest and I can poke fun. But it was scary and I was overwhelmed. We both were. And we were out and we had taken the goats out to pasture. <laughs> we were like, bring this herd of goats out. They let us do that after a week or two. And it's not that hard. But so anyways, we're leading the goats out to the area where they're going to eat. And, and then they kind of move around this area throughout the day. But another group of goats comes by and they mix. And we don't do anything to stop it because we don't know anything. And a herder that we're staying with comes gets on a horse and comes riding out. But he's like riding fast and he's screaming and yelling. He's yelling at us. And he's angry. And it was the first time on that trip that I felt comfortable because I knew what the hell was going on. Like I understood, oh, he's mad at me. I made a mistake. I'm in trouble. Like I understood that emotion. And so I had this very profound realization. That Why was he mad? To this day. Yeah, it's a good question. Those are, that was another group of goats that aren't his. And if they mix, how the hell are you supposed to pick them all apart? Who's is who? How do you do that? Now, they know it just takes forever and it's a pain in the ass. So I made a stupid mistake that like for them, a normal person would never let happen because obviously that's dumb. You know what I mean? So I'm in trouble. But I have this moment where I realize I've made a mistake. And I know what's going on. And I have a further, probably more profound realization that is like, oh, 
this is a human being like me. Like, I know that that sounds like very dumb for lack of a better term. It is dumb, but like simple at the same time. I realized that he's a human being. I'm a human being. We're all people living the same, like with, through the same human condition. When we're angry, we yell. When we're sad, we cry. When we're happy, we smile. Those are universalities of the human condition. And it doesn't matter if you're a nomadic herder in Mongolia or you're a 24-year-old kid working on Wall Street in New York. Those are the same things. And for the first time in my life, I realized that, oh, everybody's equal. Everybody's equal. We're all human beings. Mm -hmm. And that was a big, mm -hmm. very profound feeling for me that somehow had never fully registered. When you live in New York City, you're running a million miles an hour. It's constantly about the differences. Like, how am I better than that guy? Or what mm -hmm. am I, how am I different than this person? And this was a moment of realizing that I should not be obsessed with all things that make us different, should be focused on the things that make us the same. And that felt like a big message to share with people. I didn't know how I was going to do it, but I knew I wanted to share that emotion, that feeling, and that message because it's important. And listen, now more than ever, if people could just simply understand these things, mm -hmm. maybe a lot of things would be different. So, so go ahead. Sorry. I've been talking for half an hour. I'm sure no, this is like <laughs> one of those stories. <laughs> this is one of those things where it's like a book that you are convinced is just a fiction story. And you're like, no, this happened in real life. Like I'm reading this book of the American Kingpin about the guy who created the Silk Road, like Amazon cool. for illicit goods. Cool, and it cool. feels like a drama. It feels like it's something that's a, that should be a Hollywood film, but it's a real story end to end. I so, love that. Help us connect the dots. How do you go from that eureka moment to mm -hmm. saying, huh, I want to work with the great people here and turn it into <laughs> a brand? I mean, like, how does that manifest? Okay, you ready for chapter two? We eventually leave. And we leave with this idea that we want to help them because they helped us. And we cared about these people. And they have a their lifestyle is very harsh. They subsist, like truly subsist through incredible climate conditions. It's negative 40 degrees on average in Mongolia in the wintertime. They have something called the windy season where you can barely stand up. Like it is harsh living. And these communities are oftentimes the last ones to feel the impact of big micro or macro shifts. So if there's a big political shakeup, they find out last. If there's economic challenges, they're the ones that get hurt the most. If there's a big climate change happening, they are impacted and they're the last ones to find out that it's a problem. So we said, okay, we got to somehow stabilize this for our friends. And we decide we're going to start a nonprofit. And so we can convince ourselves that we're like, okay, we're nonprofit guys now. We're going to raise some money. We're going to start a nonprofit. We have an idea. The idea was simple. Let's invest in programs and concepts that will basically improve the microeconomic development of this area by basically asking them the things that they want. So you talk to a herder, say, what do you want? He doesn't say, I need a flat screen TV. He says, I need to make sure my animals are healthy because if they're not healthy and they die, I die. <laughs> I have nothing to eat. I can't sell what comes off of it and I make no money. So they just want the health of their animals. So we go, okay, let's invest in livestock insurance. So if there's a crazy winter storm that kills all the animals, 
they get reimbursed. We'll just pay for the insurance premium. Let's look at veterinary programs. The health of the animal is critical. Let's make sure there's healthier animals in this region. And we start investing in programs like that with this community. We did a Kickstarter way back when, and we put all the money into funding these programs. About a year goes by of making these investments and trying to understand and calculate the return, assuming that if we stabilize the livelihood for these herders, there will be a calculable microeconomic impact uh, that we can report. And we try and do that calculation, but we don't get anywhere. And what we realize is nothing's changed, even though we've invested this money in the community. And sure, we probably needed a larger data set, but we uncovered something really crucial, which is that no matter how much I focus on improving the health of the animal or the stability of your herd, the value of it when you trade it does not change for the simple reason that in these remote areas in Mongolia, the local trade systems are fixed. They're rigged. So classic trade practices would stop a, a lot of what happens in these regions from happening because it's illegal. There it's not. And so the simplest way of explaining this is if you're a herder and I'm a trader, I come in the springtime, I'm going to say to you, I'm going to buy everything you have. You sell it to me because you don't have a choice. I'm the only one coming by. And if anybody else comes by, I know them. We fixed the price together. We got together. We said, we're not paying more than $2 this year to these guys. We can only sell it for $10 to the next person. And we want to make our money. So let's just all tell them that it's $2. Give them $2. They got nowhere else to go. And they're forced to sell it to us at the price we ask. So even if I make the animals healthier or I stabilize it somehow, no one's going to pay more for it. It's fixed. But the simple assumption is healthier goats wow. make more valuable material. I missed one big part of this, this equation, which is they heard goats produce cashmere. That's what they're selling. So we look at all that. We say, okay, why don't we become the traders? Screw those other guys. And let's go directly to our friends, the herders that we've been supporting anyways. And let's pay 4 or $5. Let's literally double or triple their annual income overnight. But we're not going to resell. We're not going to buy it and sell it for $10. We're going to buy it and own it. We just have to figure out how to make sweaters, and then we're going to sell those sweaters. So we have that like big aha moment that this nonprofit work is great, but it really should be paired with actual buying behaviors so that it's a full circle system that really improves their livelihood. The only problem with that is all these markets are – cash-only marketplaces. They're remote. You have to know how to get there. And we would need to come in and buy everything so that no one could sell to somebody else and get screwed. So we find a private lender in New York City, and he agrees to give us a loan for $2.5 million. It's a hard money loan, which means it has very high interest and just a 12-month window, and it has to be collateralized by an asset at equal value. We figure all that out, with the help of some family members, which I won't mention here, but very grateful to. And we collateralize a loan and we take $2.5 million. I send that $2.5 million to a bank account in Mongolia and I show up the following spring. I walk into the bank and I take out $2.5 million in cash. I filled 32 plastic shopping bags with bundles of money. It was 65 pounds of money that filled the backseat of a Land Cruiser from floor to ceiling so you couldn't see out the back uh, window. And I drove 20 hours in the middle of the Gobi Desert, and I showed up and I bought almost 50 tons of raw cashmere, filled about 16 tractor trailers filled with raw material. And then over a 36-hour period, I trucked it back 
to Ulaanbaatar, the capital, where we started Nottam. And that was six years ago. Okay. 20-second timeout. First of all, <laughs> this is bonkers. The, I, I, this needs to be turned into a film because I don't know why. I'm just envisioning you're coming off the tarmac. You're pulling up to this village and everyone knows you. Like the grandparents know you, the sons and daughters of them and their grandchildren. Like, yay, Matt, so I miss funny. you. So It's not quite like that. It's, it's not quite like that. Mongolians are – they look at me and they think I'm weak. Like we've been instilled throughout our experiences with a ton of humility. I show up in Mongolia and they look at me and they're like, wait, why aren't you fatter? Why aren't you stronger? Why can't you ride a horse? Why don't you know how to sh- like do anything that like a man is supposed to know how to do? I am not like a highly regarded figure, like in terms of the, wow. the, the things that they prescribe value to, to be very honest. And that humility bred everything else we ever did because every situation we ever went into from that point forward, we approached with an understanding that we don't know. And we should ask what other people know first before we pretend to have an answer. Yeah, now we buy so, three over three hundred tons of cashmere a year, but those still, you know, those concepts still persist. How do you de-risk the investment? That's a lot of cash. Did you at the time were you selling B to other brands? Did you how did you launch Nottum knowing yeah. that you could return that two and a half million dollar loan? I didn't know I could return it, but it was pretty safe to a certain degree. We were buying a commodity that had a trade value. So worst case scenario, there was a one-for-one trade value. In this case, probably more than a one-for-one trade value if we got ourselves in trouble. And we could just offload the raw material itself to a lot of buyers. For the simple reason that it's hard to get this stuff the way we did, you know what I mean, at the prices we do. Normally, if you're trying to buy cashmere, you're going through three or four layers of middlemen that are taking markups. By working directly and disintermediating these existing trade systems, we had bought a material at a much lower cost than it was being traded at the commodity level trade market price. So it was protected to to, to that end. It wasn't just – we didn't just go out there and hope this all came together. We, we understood what we were <laughs> buying, I think, most importantly. And so the challenge next was what to do with it. A lot of steps. You have to wash and dehair the material. And through the process of washing and dehairing it and cleaning it and getting it ready to be spun into a yarn, we realized you lose 50% of what you buy. Just like that's the loss factor. Okay, so now we're left with half of what we bought. Okay, now we're getting how this works. And then we figure, okay, we have to spin this into a yarn. And that yarn is then used to knit a sweater. And knitting goes through big knitting machines and that's done all over the world. So... We wanted to do it sustainably. We wanted to make sure we were working with facilities that we could that, that had some level of certification around chemical usage, water usage. We found a facility in northern Italy in Biella, and we ended up washing and dehairing the, facil- the the materials in Mongolia, and then we shipped them in a truck from Mongolia to Beijing. Got on the water, and then it went all the way around to southern Italy, and then went to northern Italy where we spun it into a yarn. And now we had twenty tons. 25 tons of 
yarn. So the first thing we did, we started selling some of the yarn and we would attach our story to the yarn and we were selling it to Hugo Boss and we were selling it to Michael Kors and we were selling in yarn because it was really beautiful Italian spun yarn and high quality cashmere straight from Mongolia. And it had a good story, but we were giving that story away because we didn't know what we wanted to do. We then realized, okay, we have to make sweaters. We'll make we'll make this whole thing work if we can figure out how to make a sweater. So we decided we were going to ship the yarn back to China and we were going to knit sweaters. And that's how we that's how we started. Nottam is an interesting case. You know, we built a big direct consumer brand. And we had to figure out what direct consumer meant for our kind of business, our product. What we did early on was leverage our raw material to develop the relationships that make the odds of having a successful apparel brand higher. And what that means is we asked the manufacturers that we're going to knit our stuff, what do you want? And they said, can we buy that yarn from you directly at a lower cost with no markup so that we can resell it to our other brands and then mark it up to them? We said, okay, cool. We'll do that if you give us 120-day terms on manufacturing and a higher margin on our product. We shook on it and they said, okay, fine. So now I don't have to put cash out other than on the raw material to actually make my product. And I'll have to pay the manufacturer back until after I figure out a way to sell it or get paid. We establish that relationship and then we go Genius. out. Genius. And, and the manufacturer is also saying, well, we need high units. High units is how we optimize our, our business. So, okay, how are we going to get these high units? So we start reaching out to Saks and Nordstrom's and large retailers in the US. Say, how about we manufacture for you? We could get a better cost than any of your other partners, we promise. So that's what we did. We started private labeling for other people because we just need to get units up to our manufacturer. So we get these big orders and overnight we're doing millions and millions of dollars in sales, giving big orders to our manufacturers, getting better margins than our competitors in an effort to just build our own brand. The point is now that we got all the economics in our favor and the supply chain optimized, now when we go make our own product, we don't have to worry about hitting minimums for our manufacturers so we can really optimize what the customer wants. We have terms on all our manufacturing so we don't have to pay up front, figure out a way to sell. We're not out cash. Our cash flow is really clean. And even when we do so, we're going to get a better margin than most of our competitors because our raw materials are about half of other people's and we have a better deal with the manufacturer itself. So we have all the underlying factors that build a healthy business, good gross margins, healthy cash flow, strong manufacturing relationships, optimized and scaled logistics. All we need to do is tell our story. And that's when we started looking at direct consumer and we said, okay, this is the best place for us to tell our story. How should we do that? So we came to a conclusion that we needed two things. We needed basically a really good storytelling vehicle, which we settled on as video format. And then we needed a tip of the spear product that told the story for us without ever having to see the video. But it'd be good if you saw them both. And so we came up with the idea for a $75 sweater tells our story. Shows you you can get a luxury quality product for lower than anybody else's because of sustainability. Because we build equitable relationships, we have a sustainable supply chain, we do the right thing, you get a product that costs less. That's it. That's it. That's the whole thing. And as soon as we launched that product and told our story with our brand video, we went from selling thousands of units to millions of units. And now we sell millions and millions of those $75 sweaters. And they've anchored a lot of what Nottam as a brand has become. Wow. Okay. 
I got I got a whole bunch of questions. I, I want to start from the like pie chart of the business today. Mm-hmm. Have you gone all in on direct to consumer? Do you still work in some capacity with these other brands and Nordstrom? What what is it? What does the business look like today? Yeah, so it's very different than it was. We do yeah, we, we do everything. So my thesis is if you look around at the most valuable brands in the world, they distribute through every avenue possible because that's how you make the most money. So you optimize each channel individually, but you really focus on making sure that each one contributes to the whole. So we have major wholesale relationships. We're carried in hundreds and hundreds of doors in the United States and abroad. We have private label relationships with a lot of those same retailers. We have gray label relationships. We have private label with our label. That's like what we call gray label. You go to QVC, you find Soft by Nottom, which is a sub label we make just for them. We then make a separate collection just for our e-commerce business because in each one of these places, we have a different customer. The person who wants to shop online directly with us is for the most part a millennial. Our customer at QVC is very different. Our customers at Nordstrom's and Saks and Shopbop and Net-A-Porte, they are a customer at a different stage of their career or life. And so they're looking for a different product altogether, maybe a little more expensive, maybe more design, more contemporary, et cetera. So it's a very diversified distribution. We also have our own retail. We have, we've had a lot of stores. We started pairing back in 2020. We're going to reopen through 2021, 2022. We're just at the stage of really figuring it out, that distribution. I'll add one more complexity to this thing, which is a big part of my life today, which is Certainly an extension of where Nottom's gone. Two years ago, we started thinking about using Nottom's infrastructure to build other brands and building a whole co of multiple brand assets. And so Nottom is a big brand asset, but all of our scale and leverage could be used to build great brand ideas. So we bought into two new businesses. One's a minority and one's a majority stake. Uh, one of them is a designer label called Takoon, which we launched in 2019. And another is an influencer driven brand called something navy which we launched six months ago so it's a lot and oh man i don't know if you saw my (laughs) my fiance walking in the background i'm not kidding (laughs) ariel charnez is her number one i I think she spent over a thousand dollars in store she's waited in line she gets the appointments at the store (laughs) she was part of the website crash what was it uh whatever that store i forget what the nordstrom's nordstrom crash she was like uh, it was a three uh, oh my gosh i cannot wait to tell her that you were so you are a partner in i mean a a, a major owner i'm the ceo of something navy and we are not a runs kind of the back end of something navy uh-huh. yeah we operate the business and we're a minority a large minority owner yeah so we've shifted Nottam now and it's scaled to owning multiple brands and we're just just beginning stages of buying a couple new businesses too our strategy really is taking all the things we learned building Nottam because i know i said it quickly and i walked you through all these different like learnings and processes but like all of that can really help a great brand grow a lot faster if we share that information, our experience, the talent, systems, and our operations. That's what we've done with Something Navy. That's what we've done with Takoon. That's what we're doing with a few brands uh, in the near future. So, yeah, it's changed a lot. That is – uh, wow. Yeah. And I, I am sufficiently you, surprised. This was a trip – As you can tell. To take, <laughs> this was a trip I was meant to take abroad to have some fun. And – that this is basically what it's turned into. So, yeah, somehow I make women's clothing for a living. That is 
unbelievable. All right, so we're on in good hands, right? I'm a show about fo- focusing on climate solutions, and we talked a bit about sustainability. And I, I think w- what I'd love to hear is what or in what ways is sustainability baked into your manufacturing principles? It's really branded heavily on not. And you talked yep. several times on our up until now about how it's baked into transportation miles, how things are made. Maybe just clarify, like how is Nottam and the brands that you work with more sustainable than comps? And then how do you think about sustainability now and over the next few years? A couple of things. I don't love the verbiage of sustainability because I think it's been largely bastardized for marketing purposes by the wrong brands. So I say it all the time, but I just haven't found a better word for it. I qualify sustainability. And I, and, and that's like an important statement and it's about communication. I've never pretended that Nottam's the most or best or doing the most sustainable things. There's a lot of great businesses doing stuff out there. What's important to me is it's setting intentions, setting goals, and being honest. Nottam was built off of three principles, humility, transparency, and integrity. Which means everything you do, you approach as though other people know more. So you want to learn first. Two, do it transparently. You share, you communicate, you share with people where you are. If you're not doing something perfectly, just tell them you're not doing perfectly. You might set an intention that you want to do it perfectly, but you got to be honest that you're not doing it perfectly. And integrity, it's a little bit of an ambiguous term, but it just means don't be a shithead. Don't lie and don't cheat. That's what we built these businesses by. But I use that also to qualify the way we think about sustainability in that we we feel it's important to have an honest conversation with our customer and say, we're not 100% on almost anything because 100% is virtually impossible to do, especially in a category where I'm going to sell you something, you're going to buy it, and I have a 90% certainty to throw it away at some point. It's not my control. So I, I can't make sure every part of this is the most sustainable thing, but it's about our intentions. Our intentions are to do it the right way. And and that spreads across a couple of different areas. There's the right way of how you treat people, how you, you create business relationships. You do it equitably. You find out what they need, you find out what you need, and you reach a conclusion that satisfies both parties. The other side is environmental, right? Which is first we need to understand what are we doing wrong to understand what we need to do. Certainly we set some things in stone that we want to do really well. We don't want to use harmful chemicals. We know we don't have to. So we don't want to do that. We know that a big part of our industry it pollutes water sources through downstream effects, through harsh chemical usage and, and other factors. Let's do our best to eliminate that. I can tell you right now, it's very hard to do perfectly, but you could try, right? And it's about trying. It's about showing people what you're actually doing <clears throat> alongside what you want to do, not just what you want to do. Or not just showing people after you've done some stuff and then you qualify it with a fun infographic. Tell people everything you do, wrong or right. When you make a mistake, tell them you made a mistake. When you're doing something badly, tell them you're doing it badly. And I feel like for us, it was as much about doing the right things environmentally and within the sphere of sustainability as it was about like setting up a system of communication that we hoped other people would come to leverage because it was human at its core. It's organic to begin with. And so that's what Nottam does really well. Now, you know, as we've grown, these supply chains are big, right? And we look at, you know, what our carbon emissions are from trucking or air freight or shipping by container. We look at 
the water usage in our facilities, the chemical usage. We look at labor practices at our facilities or in our own offices. All of those systems, operations, manufacturing facilities and headquarters are shared. So yes, yeah, something Navy might not talk about it because frankly, it's not the most important pillar of the brand identity. It's more important at Nottom right now, but it doesn't mean it doesn't get the same benefit of all of those things. So for me, I love that element because it's like, I can secretly make stuff sustainable. I can secretly make stuff better based on a vision for the way I think it should work. I get frustrated when I see people like shouting from the mountaintops, oh, the most sustainable, like good for you. Just do it. You know what I mean? Just like show up and do it. And like at Nottam, mm-hmm. we really take, we take that approach. And then I'd say the defining quality out of everything else I've ever done, Nottam has a sense of humor about it. Like we got to be able to poke fun at ourselves. Like we, we can't take this shit too seriously. We make sweaters for a living. Like we're not curing cancer here. If we had a bad day, we just had a bad day making sweaters. <laughs> like that's it. So let's make fun of this whole thing. Let's have fun with it. And let's in that way, make the entire topic approachable and accessible. That's what it's about. When sustainability is an inaccessible concept to the majority of people, it's a failure. Flat out, it's a failure. Mm-hmm. If it's accessible to people, then you get mm-hmm. people to join in and you actually foster real change. And I think we've seen that happen since we started Nottam. And that's probably the thing I'm most proud of. That's awesome. I, I'm curious, especially as someone that has 30,000 30, foot view of a, a very large operation, are there any types of levers you're looking to pull over the next few years that gets you closer to uh, homeostasis? I, I completely agree with you. My biggest frustration is overt greenwashing and and people lean so heavily into it like we've had amazing brands on the show we got like sunday raising tens of millions of dollars like really cool brands and i think to your point the thing that sells is transparency like people much prefer honesty over greenwashing and we've seen some cool tactics like the people at Tentry donate trees every time someone makes a purchase a bunch of big designer brands are doing refashion lines where they like take in already sold goods and then clean them and make them into new lines. So I'm wondering of the map of opportunity that gets Nottam and and your other brands maybe closer to to homeostasis, are there any levers that are intriguing to you that you're looking to pursue? What is it? What does that roadmap look like for you? If there is one. It's a a ripple effect. We start with my, my entire thesis for business is just focus on the things you do. Like it's when businesses stop focusing on what's their reason to exist in the first place that they normally run into to problems. And so we focus on what we know, which is number one for us is cultural preservation, right? Like we're here to take care of those herders that we started with. We're here to help support that culture because we loved it. The day that's not the first thing out of my mouth, we have a problem. The day I'm caught up trying to chase the, the newest fad or trend in sustainability, today we lose who we are. So number one is that community side of things. And every year we give hundreds of thousands of dollars back to those communities in ways that don't build a crutch, but build sustainable economic solutions long-term. It's crucial. And we take that same concept as we look at new alternatives. For a long time, I struggled with, okay, if Nottam was ever going to like branch out into new product categories, I'm unlikely to end up 
in another part of the world and somehow build some unique relationships that show me there's some disintermediation in a supply chain that has some great sustainable outcome. Probably not. And there were people along the way who were like, you're going to do that. And I'm like, no, I'm 32 years old now. Like, I'm not doing that anymore. But we translate what we know into other categories, which is we now know how to qualify what real sustainable materials are. A lot of people talking about, oh, this is an organic cotton. Okay, give me a break. Let's really walk through why this is better than the alternative, right? And so we become very good at analyzing supply chains to understand the qualities of a product or materials development that are unique, both for the customer's perception of what they're buying and the quality of their the development. So like how sustainable are they? Are they really reducing water usage? Are they really reducing energy usage in the process? Is it better than the synthetic alternatives that exist out there? Like how recyclable is it? That kind of stuff. So we've taken that idea and we've stretched that into how we're analyzing new materials. And so the exciting thing that we're really focused on is taking that unique competency into new materials for Nautum and our other brands. My goal one day is to across all our businesses, be using the most sustainable versions of materials to make clothing. Not to tell people we do it because we have a competency of analyzing that better than other people. That's my big vision for where all of this ends up going. And I know that comes back to the reason we exist or how we've developed, I should say. And listen, there are offshoots to all of that, right? Like we're constantly analyzing what we do well and what we don't do well from an energy perspective, from chemical uses, from those water usage and, and, and downstream effects, labor practices, obviously. So that those are like the ripples out from that initial concept of let's be the best at analyzing what makes this good. And if what comes out of it is this version of cotton uses a way different labor pool to manufacture. It might be using the same amount of water and it might have the same kind of chemical factors, but it might really impact some level of labor in the supply chain. That is what we want to hang our hat on. And we think moves the needle and makes change happen in the future. So that that's really where I see it going moving forward. That's what gets me excited anyways. Mm-hmm. That's awesome. So I got two fun questions to cap off the interview. And I, I wasn't going to ask the first one. And now I know that you're thinking from like that, a Holdco worldview. That's like super interesting to me. So uh, a fun one for you, because I know you're probably scouring the land for opportunity. Are there a few brands? And you've got to be talking to a bunch of people in industry, but maybe if you can't tease uh, specific names, is there a certain... T- like subcategory of opportunity that intrigues you most that like you're actively pursuing browsing mm-hmm. or to the extent that you can share, what are you dipping your toes into? What's going to, what are you going to tag on to the Nottam hold co? So I can't share names, but I'm going to, I'll share a category that I've loved for a long time that I'd like to get involved in. And it's CPG. It's not apparel at all, actually. In my initial analysis, there's actually a lot of shared systems and operations and supply chain, at least in terms of competency that can be leveraged there from a whole co perspective, but just like also know-how, a lot of synergy. So I'm very interested in CPG. It's a, that's a little leading, but that's sustainab- sustainability <laughs> in CPG, so, I should say. Might, can I, I pitch you an idea? Too much. Please. This is a project that we put a, a pause on because of COVID. And to be honest, we're not going to pursue it. So if this interests you, please run with it. Okay. Are you familiar with Poopery? Yep, I of presume. course. Of Crushes. Course. They, they own the vast majority of 
deodorizing the act of going to the bathroom. And totally. and dude wipes, I think, just dropped like dude bombs or something like that. So anyways. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we developed a tablet version of poopery that comes in a little chapstick-sized bottle. And so it comes with – the bottle fits 15. The packaging comes with 30. And then when you run out, you keep the container and then you get refills. And the problem is like the key use case is – you're going out, you're probably going to someone else's apartment or house. And so you yep. want to have something like this on you just to diffuse any potential danger situation. So anyways, this past year was not the right timing for it. But honestly, I don't know. It doesn't like juice us. Like we went literally full nine. We thought of a name for it. We did the brand, yeah. which I can show you after. You um, made the product though. You manufactured it. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Well, Formulated it like, full nine. You're all the way there. I know, but it's one of those things. I think to do this right, because you can probably retail it for max, maybe fourteen ninety nine. Interesting. We could go for a while on this, but like we tested so the, different. The, yeah, there's a business I invested in a couple of years ago called Tushy. I'm sure you oh, know yeah. Tushy if you've been looking oh, yeah. in space. They are starting to think more broadly about all these categories and stuff, and I don't think they have anything like this going on. But if you're looking to like, all right, I'm not going to pursue this long term on my own, but I want to see if I can get this, somebody who knows something to do with it. This is this is right up their alley. It's like a perfect fit. Hey, a thousand percent. And we will happily take you up on that. Cool. Cool. <laughs> I'll, I'll, if you send me something, I'll share it with, I'll share it with Mickey and the team over there. They would love it. This is cool. like right up their alley. Cool. And like the beautiful thing is it wins on so many different use cases over poopery, right? Poopery, it's funny. They say, hey, this you use this so you have the confidence to use the bathroom. The problem is if you drop one of those things, if someone comes into the bathroom, oh, you're hit with yeah, a yeah, wall yeah, of yeah. citrus. It does the yeah. exact opposite. So what we've done here is it just neutralizes the smell. If you use this and someone comes in after you, they do not know. That's what Smells this like should nothing. do. Yes. Did you say you have like a travel stick for it or something? Yep. Yep. Cool. So it'll That's be like smart. in a little chapstick really cool. size container. Put it. It can fit. Yeah. yeah. All right. Anyways, That's this cool. has gone off the, off the rails. I have one more question for you. It's, yeah. it's my recurring bookends question. It's one idea that you'd love to work on if you had the time to do. But for now, it was just rotting away in your idea graveyard. Yeah. Yeah, it's funny. There's two two answers to this. One is generally when I have one of these ideas, I'm just doing it right now. The idea for a long time was this idea of the whole cope and now it's happening. But I've always had an idea for an apparel brand. And I this is so stupid. But like <clears throat> Zara is for me, that's like the epitome of this industry. Like you can do that, you can make a ton of money and it's like very valuable. But I think everything about how that business was built and how it exists today is wrong. Like just fundamentally wrong. The idea is simple though. Make stuff that just looks good, that costs less. Problem is Zara kind of sucks. It's a piece of shit. Like the clothing's awful. And the ethics of that business from day one have been really horrendous. I've always had this idea that I want to like rebuild that business model for the next generation with a better value prop on the quality of the product, but built with the right ethics in mind. And it's not that something maybe and not can't be something like that, but they're just not like you have to be ready to build something different. But that's the idea I, I always think about. I see stuff. I'm like, that's a great $400 like APC thing. What if it cost $90 
but it, and it was the same exact quality and it was made really nicely and people go oh well, that's like zara but i'm like yeah but like zara is like like also made it on a boat on the way over here like it's not mm-hmm. okay mm-hmm. so anyways that's the one that's been kicking around for a long time and who knows if it'll ever happen what i'd love to see done more in fashion is just deploy the Adams model, what they're doing for shoes across all of their apparel categories. Like the fact that they said, all right, feet are different sizes. So let's create shoes that yeah, are yeah. designed to, what is it, by like the quarter size. And so yeah. there are so many use cases outside of shoes where that same denominator problem exists. So I, you know, I've see- looked at businesses. I've looked at businesses that are trying to do that. I've been pitched on businesses that have like, you know, infinite amount of sizes or something. And it always comes down to the scalability of that variation of SKUs is really difficult from an inventory management perspective. So mm-hmm. no, I've looked at the same thing. I also wish Adams would just make other styles too. Like I want them to branch out a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, they just did a collab with the guy, one of the guys from Queer Eye. Who like owns oh, really? the fashion vertical? I'm blinking on his oh, name. That's cool. It's a good looking. Yeah, shoe. I know. I know. I know. Yeah, interesting. But the problem with Allbirds and Adams and a couple, they make one style of shoe. The beauty of these really big shoe brands is they make something for everybody. So mm-hmm. I don't know. That's been my biggest gripe about how the footwear industry has been evolving in the startup space. But whatever. No one's listening to me, so who cares? We have Thousand Fell coming on the pod pretty soon. So cool. I know. I'm gonna, I'm gonna guys. say, guys, hey, let's rock. I know those guys um, right, Matt, really well. That's awesome. I'd love, yeah, cool people. Yeah. Matt, I'd love to to roll the red carpet. Are there any final call to actions, hiring needs, anything that you want to leave with our listeners? The floor is yours. Um, no, actually, I feel, I feel like I've spilled my guts out on this thing, and I'm happy about it. But no, I <laughs> or go shop at Nottam. I guess that's the only one. Rock on, Matt. Congrats on on all of your success. Thank you for sharing what I'm convinced will one day be Emmy-nominated documentary or something (laughs) of that nature. Matt, you're the best. Seriously, thanks for coming on. I appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me, man. Hey there, you made it to the outro. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode. If you're new here, welcome. If you're a longtime listener, Thank you so much. We're actively casting for new guests on our show. So if you have a rockstar founder or company in mind that's working on something cool, message me on Instagram at Peter A. Levin or email us, hello at ingothands.us. Thank you so much again and look forward to bringing you another new episode next Tuesday.